Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast More Than Medical Students, the podcast that brings forward inspiring medical students and shares their journeys, the exciting projects they're part of and how this can also inspire you. My name is Marianne and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. You may know me from my Instagram page called Marianne Does Medicine where I share my day-to-day -day life as a medical student as well as tips for other students. We are medical students but we are all so much more than that. Join me in this podcast to celebrate our diversity, our uniqueness, and what really makes us, us. everyone and welcome on this new episode of the podcast. Today I'm very happy to be joined by Jess. Uh, hi Jess, welcome on the podcast. If you'd just like to introduce yourself to everyone and thank you for coming in. Thank you for inviting me Marianne. Um, I'm Jess, I'm a fourth year medical student at King's College London um, in the UK and yeah I do a few projects on the side so I run a website and blog called Progress with Jess and um, I love traveling alongside medicine um, and sharing information with students so they um, not just survive but they thrive at medical school and beyond. Great that's awesome and uh, yes there's so many things that you do on the side that we can talk about today so I'm really excited about exploring all these topics that you mentioned. Um, I wanted to start as well just from the beginning so when did you know you wanted to go to med school when did you know Or when did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor um, and take us through that a little bit? Yeah, so when I was in secondary school, um, I was definitely one of the cliche students who enjoyed science. And when you like science and you're quite mathematical and analytical, you look at a few of the careers in that field and doctor is like, of course, going to come up. Um, but I think what cemented it for me was actually work experience. Um, I think I, when I, so I actually did work experience at a vet and a doctor's because I knew I wanted to do something clinical. Um, and I wasn't sure if I actually preferred animals or humans because I do love animals. And then I went to both and I really, um, I think the human connection was definitely up there for me. I really felt, um, kind of was fangirling a little bit in awe of what doctors did and how much patients trusted them and also how much you can do within the role you can cure a condition but you can provide housing um you could buy a letter for housing a letter for someone to get their next job or to get time off work so you can help people have better lives in other ways as well and I was like I think this is something I can do um but obviously got to applying and didn't have the best idea of the application process um And fell short when it came to interviews because I was this 17-year-old who had a couple of work experiences but really didn't know how to articulate that properly in interviews. Um, and it's really disappointing because one of my work experiences was at a hospice and I think I got to see a unique side of medicine when doctors actually didn't do much of the curing but more of the making sure that your end of life was really peaceful. And... Um, Like I would eat, I was tearing up about it at interview, but I couldn't speak about how good it was, how much it made me want to do medicine. And I think it was a confidence thing. So took a gap year and in that gap year, it made sure that I wanted to do medicine even more because I worked as a healthcare assistant in the NHS hospital. Um, 
I was doing the 12 hour shifts. I was cleaning patients. I was talking to families. I dealt with death. And I think after that, I was like, okay, this is actually, now that I've got a, a real world view of what medicine is, I also did a little bit of traveling to the Dominican Republic at the time um, to get that global perspective. I was like, I do think I'm cut out to be an NHS doctor, but like, regardless of whether I am or not, that medical degree could also serve me in other countries across the world. I mean, I think for me, it was the um, the privilege of being able to have medical knowledge to know what to do in a situation that might end someone's life if you don't intervene. And yeah, I came a lot, I came across a lot better at interviews, was a lot more confident, did other things in my gap year, like learning how to drive, learning how, basically understanding how to manage money. And I just came across as a more well-rounded individual um at interviews and um got into kings in the end great that's awesome and it's really interesting to hear about you know um the first kind of unsuccessful attempt um thank you for sharing that as well because there might be other people listening who you know have tried and haven't gotten into medicine the first try and it's really inspirational to hear about what you're saying that sometimes as well you know that whole year gives you so much in your kind of like personal life but as well in how you come across in interviews and what you could bring to the medical school afterward with that added experience as a healthcare assistant I'm sure was really valuable first of all in interview but also when starting on clinical placement you could bring all your experience that you had there so that's great would you have any other tips you know from someone who's kind of like applying to medicine the second time and maybe a bit lost maybe a bit discouraged after a first unsuccessful attempt I think I was quite I think looking back I'm quite impressed at myself at 17 for not taking it personally I think that's the first step it's nothing to do with who you are as a person or that you're not good enough for medicine it just means that in this round of applicants you weren't as good as others and that's okay that's going to happen in life um but I think what you need to do is kind of take a step back allow yourself to be a little bit sad about it but then think about what you probably could have done better because I'm sure if you think hard enough there will be something because for me it was definitely the interview um clearly I'd got the grades, clearly I'd done well in the UCAT BMAT, but that was the last hurdle that I fell out. So what could I do better for next time in the interview? Um, also, the kind of difficult thing with reapplying is you have to do everything again. So just because what you did for the UCAT worked before doesn't mean it will work this time. So keeping, like making sure you have that timeline really clear from the outset. What do you need to do first? When does UCAT need to be registered for? When do you, are you thinking of doing the BMAT? Do you not want to do the BMAT? I didn't do it the second time round. I was like, I'm just going to do UCAT and focus on UCAT unis. And then also what, like practicing for interview. This isn't an interview you can wing. You do need to have experiences um, that you're ready to use and reflect on. And if you haven't done the preparation, it really does show. And I think that's where I was a bit naive. But for example, if you're listening to this and you really struggled with the entrance exams, that should be your first port of like port of call focus. Um, there's lots of free resources online. I have blog posts on my website. There's free UCAT ebooks. There's you must do practice questions for any exam you're doing, admissions test or not, and just kind of like focus your energy on the part that you tended to not get past. Um, mm. And then once you've completed that, then start thinking about interview because I think that's the next big stage. Because that interview, you know, everybody has been invited there because they want you to come to the university and you just have to give them a reason to not want you. And if that's lack of preparation, then it just makes them, it makes it easier to choose someone else. So um, you just need to get there and not give them a reason to not like you or want you. And that just takes a little bit of preparation. Perfect. Great. Yeah, these are really important tips and like you say it's really important to not take it personally and 
uh, try to see what what you can improve. Um, Great. And then after this, how was first year? How was med school? How was just like, you know, coming from this gap year into med school? How did you find it? So a lot of people get very nervous. If you take a gap year, do you come into medicine like a blank slate? Um, And I won't lie, you you can forget a lot in a year. Um, Don't ask me what I know from first year. I couldn't tell you. But um, you do forget a lot in a year. But I do feel like when you come into medical school, the beauty of it is you do start from scratch so everybody's done a level chemistry probably biology um but you building on that and you're starting from a molecular level when you build up from there i think the biggest change for me and many other students gap year or not is going from a classroom to very shared learning being able to ask questions directly to a teacher or ask questions to a friend nearby and and chat about things to sitting in a lecture room and there's many, many lectures a day, different topics. What you didn't understand from that lecture, you've got to park it. There's another lecture coming up and keeping up with that volume of content. Um, but I mean, there's ways to <laughs> The beauty of uni is learning how to learn. So you're going yeah. to have to figure out different ways to get through things. I was doing the notes, then I switched to active recall, flashcards. People tend to do loads of handwritten posters. I, I love posters personally. Um, so everybody's going to have their little niche ways of memorising facts and figures and understanding what's high yield or not. But I think talking to colleagues, making friends actually makes that process a lot easier for you Like to get to know other people in your cohort because they can help you understand. They can You can teach each other as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think you do share a lot as well in your blog posts and everything about different study techniques. So mm. um, definitely have a have a look at that. And uh, you're right that med school is a time, I think, to explore different. I mean, you need to explore different ways of learning because also so the content is so varied. And mm. the way you will learn anatomy is not the way you will learn biochemistry of cells. Like yeah. it's a completely different approach. So one other tip I give people is like each new module try quickly the technique and then if it doesn't work try something else like don't get bogged down being like i'm just gonna stick with it see if it works just Mm. try different things and um yeah active recall posters is a good one as well that's a good tip Mm. that was that was how i learned the krebs cycle you know once upon a time if you asked me about the krebs cycle (laughs) i'd actually know but now (laughs) you know what it actually came up in one of the things uh, because I worked in endocrinology and metabolism for four months in my F1 and the consultant brought it up and I was like this is not I thought I thought it never came up in clinical practice and there we go (laughs) but um yeah don't worry about it guys most placements you probably won't have to use it um and how did you find it clinical placements that we're talking about you know the hospitals how was that transition for you seeing it on the other side and you know uh, you know you've seen it as a healthcare assistant and now you are there as a young medical student how was that I actually think in my earlier clinical years, I wanted to be a HCA again. Mm. (laughs) I think you were, um, the thing is with being a member of staff and being an observer or a work experience student or a medical student, um, you are sometimes still on the outside looking in. And I think there's nothing like being a member of staff where you're really considered one of the group um, and you're given tasks and responsibilities to do. And it's that longevity, isn't it? With a medical student, you don't actually know what their background is, what they're confident doing, what they're not confident doing. Whereas with a HCA, I got to build a rapport with my colleagues and they trusted me to do things. But I think 
what I loved is that obviously you kind of hinted at it before it gave me the confidence and experience to go into placement quite keen and confident to do things you know I don't need to be taught how to do a set of observations I've done them before I was a HCA immediately it's like a, a language to NHS staff that okay cool go and do all the ops for the patients and we'll sign you off on whatever you need so it gave me an in in that kind of sense um and I'm not gonna lie I was itching to do clinical placements I couldn't I couldn't wait to be done with lectures um and exams and actually put what I've learned into practice and I was a dis- bit dis- disappointed when I was in my second and third year because we do start clinical placements quite early in King's but now that I'm in my fourth year and you're actually considered one of the team and you have your ID card and it actually works um and you know like all what you're learning actually does come together it feels a lot better and it's a lot more exciting yeah I think when you come in at the beginning you can feel a bit like an observer like you don't belong and you don't know what to do and you're just standing there in the corner and but it does get better like you said and I'm sure as well like coming from that background of healthcare system maybe it's less daunting you know talking to patients or like you said talking to families because although it was in a different context you you have been around patients you know I always find all the medical students that have had this HA experience are always just so different in the way they talk to patients and their communication is really amazing so I encourage people if they do have that gap here to kind of maybe think about applying for such a role and then the next thing I wanted to ask you about was when did you decide that you'd be interested to intercalate and to go and do this research masters that you did if you want to tell us a bit about that yeah sure so Research is a really strange one because I never went into medical school even knowing that you could do um, academic medicine or do research. I think when I started to get um, clued up about publications and things was like third year, but I'd already started doing research in second year. So um, my first research experience, well, I wouldn't call it a research experience. I was quite interested in, I quite enjoyed essays and I didn't go to a university that killed us with essays which I was actually quite happy for maybe that's why I like them because it wasn't shoved down my throat Mm. (laughs) so if anyone from Oxbridge is listening like they you know I can't do one every week um (laughs) and none of our exams are essay based either I don't know what it was like in Imperial but we had we didn't even have short answers we just SBAs the whole time I don't is that yeah we had one kind of like ethics exam that was like short answer where you had to write a little paragraph but not essays so we Mm. didn't have any essays at Imperial yeah. yeah. So like King's definitely incorporated research modules into our curriculum. Um, so we would have to hand in assignments. And in my second year, I did a student selected component, which actually ended up being published. But I just love my supervisor. I love the fact that I got to do something. It was on vitamin B12, like very biochem heavy. Um, didn't really know much about it, but it was a great chance to use a bit of maths, get into stats, write up something and feel a bit proud of my work. And in year two, I was also doing essay competitions. It sounds really sad, but like (laughs) I found topics that I was interested in and was just like, well, I I have an opinion on this. Let me write it out and submit it. And then I won a couple of competitions, which one of them ended up in a publication as well. So I was like, this is quite fun because I was always good at English at school and it was just something I never saw myself doing as a career and I feel like a kind of my motto or like sentiment or principle is to continue hobbies like no matter what you do what career Mm. you're in what degree you're in just continue hobbies you might do English but you love sewing like keep doing that because you don't know how they might mesh and the more you do it the more it will become a mesh in your life so writing for me like okay, I'm not writing stories, but I get to write creatively about my op- opinion with a scientific, with scientific knowledge involved in that. And um, took that further 
and was like, why don't I, I would like my little experience of research in year two, essay competitions, clearly done okay in those. In year three, I had a scholarly project as part of King's as well. So we had to do another research, but this time I did a systematic review. And I was like, Mm. I'm still liking this. I think I could take a year out and do this for a year and just see what I can produce. Um, So I had a look around and I had a, a peer who was a few years older who had gone to Cambridge. And if it wasn't for that exposure and knowing that that was possible, I probably wouldn't have bothered looking. So I had a look around on Cambridge. I was like, what do they offer? Oh, they only offer masters. Like, can I do a masters as an intercalation? Did a bit of research about that. Yes, you can. I was like, I'm going to make an application. And I saw, so the way that the research masters in Cambridge works is you approach a supervisor and you ask them about their work and you ask them for like a little Zoom call, which is basically an interview. So I got an interview from a lady before the supervisor I went with. And I thought it went okay, but I never heard back from her after. Mm. So I took that as a, oh. They don't want me. I'm not getting in. This is so bad. But then I found another project that I really liked, which was about child and adolescent mental health during COVID. And I was like, this has to be the project I do. And luckily the supervisor responded back. We had a great Zoom call. We really got on like personality wise, but also I knew she was going to be someone who's going to support me. Um, And yeah, I ended up getting a place and she's been amazing. She writes references and like encourages me to go to conferences. So I've managed to get some research but also have a mentor out of that as well and connections that's great that's great and it's really interesting the way that you know before just getting into the mass you like choose that supervisor because i think at imperial the way i mean when i did my dissertation it was sort of like you get allocated the supervisor which Mm. doesn't i mean obviously you have to organize in a way for it to work with the number of academics you have or something like that but i think it's really interesting the way that there's these sort of like intellectual compatibility but also just like the human compatibility Mm -hmm. like can you work together as a as a team as a mentee mentor kind of a team Mm -hmm. you know on the human side because you can't get along with everyone as well to be honest so that's really interesting and just to explain to the listeners as well how does the masters work is there a taught component and a project or is it just project like how does it get organized over the year because it's 12 months isn't it Mm -hmm. so my masters was not taught so it was very it was completely research-based it was basically Um, what you would like the equivalent of like a first year of a PhD if you wanted to do a PhD you'd go from your MPhil to the other three years so it's like a foundation PhD I'd call it Mm. but um, I had really good support from my supervisor which is why it was really important to choose the the right one for you and for have and to have them choose you back um there are taught masters in a lot of other institutions um so if you really feel like you want to gain knowledge throughout the year and then do a small dissertation that's fine but mine was like a 20k word research project from start to finish and then like she had the data so my my um project was secondary analysis but you could have collected your own if you wanted to and then that was you had to have a oral exam on that thesis that you wrote so they'd ask you questions about it and yeah it was it was scary but it was it puts Mm. you in good stead for future academic posts if that's what you're looking for yeah Mm. so you said there's this 20k words kind of like dissertation and then like the viva for it or the presentation um okay that's really interesting. And how much of the input on like the project did you have, or was it more the supervisor kind of like gave you this project that you worked on? I know that's quite complex mm. at the beginning, you know, when you start a project as well. Mm. So I was really quite keen on the project. So I came up with the project title, the project angle, 
she let me know what kind of data she had and if I wanted mm. to use it and I think with what I had I then looked decided on an angle and the kind of title I wanted to do and like what I wanted to focus on but um I could have recruited people and had my own data but she had such a vast database I mean she had about 9,000 participants I knew mm. in a year there was no way I was going to get that many so I went with her data but came up with my own project surrounding that Great, that's really interesting. Because there's so many, obviously, when you do a research master's, there's so many skills there to be gained. Like, if you want, you know, the data collection part, the project kind of like planning part, which mm. can be super hard because you don't know which direction to go. And that's kind of a crucial part, you know, where you're going to take it, what's the research question going to be. So that that's super interesting that you got to do that part as well. And then obviously there's the whole analysis, statistics, and then writing yeah. it. How, how were those steps, you know, all the analysis, the writing, putting things together? I actually think the planning and the statistics were the hardest part. I definitely mm -hmm. think what I struggled with the most was getting pulled in so many directions. And I tend to do this when I'm writing a lot. And my supervisor said it too. I go down rabbit holes mm. and I want to change my angle every two seconds. And then you want to analyze a little bit of data and you find something quite interesting in the data. And you're like, should I go into this a bit more? Should I dissect into girls and boys? Should I dissect into different age groups? Should I start looking at different kinds of conditions? And there were so many branches to kind of sort through. And actually one of the feedback for my masters was that it was quite broad. And if I narrowed it, I could have produced, I can produce so many papers from it that mm. are all different narrow questions. Um, so maybe, so if you go narrower, less work, but also you've got to make sure that there's a, there's a need for it in the literature. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're quite broad, it's just that you've got so much to write you're probably going to go over the word count and then you have to cut down. So I think it was the planning. And then once you've got that far, you can't really go back and change your hypothesis, change your plan. Mm. You know, that's not good scientific research. So it was a lot of planning. The planning was actually the hardest part and getting okay. to writing was actually the easiest. It's just the planning and the analysis because without those two things, you don't have a project. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a statistician in our group who was amazing um, the support of my supervisor so having a good team a good lab whatever it is around you and using them for support is like the key for an m and I'm sure um, a PhD as well that's great yeah that's really interesting and so coming into this master's so you had this kind of like research project background but you didn't have the taught component I guess maybe at King's you had some modules about research mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure you did I don't know we had lectures here and there from Imperial but how did you kind of approach it like how did you approach research did you document yourself like how do I do research because you know obviously mm. some of it is trial and error but some of it is actually someone telling you how research works in this field yeah so it's it's crazy so like you like you said in King's we did have a few e-modules so completely mm. self-taught and it's up to you whether you do them or not obviously I'm a bit of a keen bean so I did them and I would say from that I self-taught myself how to do research but when you start getting to a higher level you can't pass Cambridge on a self-taught e-module mm. so um they had lectures that I could attend I attended this two-day um this two-day program on how to be a researcher we learned how to plan properly, how to write a method, um, the different methodology you can use, what's what stats are appropriate for different things. Mm. Um, and I just absorbed and absorbed and absorbed and wrote a lot of notes and which ended up actually form becoming an ebook. But I had a lot of notes about the rules and regulations of research. And I attended 
you know, courses on how to how to learn how to use R, mm. um, how to use Starter, which I ended up using, or Stater, whatever you want to call it, um, and stats. You know, stats is something that you do have to read up about. I'd go to these courses, I'd know what I'm doing, and then I'd be like, hmm, but does my data violate the assumptions? Mm. What are the assumptions? Let me remind myself. So it's a lot of going back and forth, back and forth, but you really do learn stats and research by doing. Um, yeah. And once you see a project from start to publication you start to realize okay like it's okay to get things wrong peer reviewers will definitely point out when something's wrong or when something doesn't quite match up but you go back and you go and revisit and you try again and you you correct and that's fine um and you get better at also reading papers online and being like you know i'm going to take this with a pinch of salt or like these stats i know how these stats are done there's room for error here or this is what these stats actually mean because stats don't mean this drug works over this drug they mean that yeah this is likely to work more or this is likely to work for this group of patients so you get a lot better at critical appraisal as well and analysis that's great yeah that's really useful and i think that's part of you know every doctor should just understand a bit how research is made because then when you read everyone's papers like you said you need to be able to interpret it and um Obviously, when you're writing a paper, you're trying to take the reader with you, but also the reader mm-hmm. has to use their own judgment when they look at your your work and your data. That that's all super interesting. And what I love about you is that you always, you know, research and find ways to learn more about this, about different things. You know, um, like you said, even before your interviews and everything in med school, you're always just looking into things, exploring, and see how you can learn things yourself as well, which is really a good skill to have I think in medical school because they do leave you to be independent about a lot of things um I'm, I'm glad it's not just me we yeah. I was complaining with my friends about this the other day on placement just like why are we left to our own devices mm. but I think you know there is bad press about medics sometimes you know we all try to sabotage re- each other we all think we're so smart and people gatekeep resources but actually what I'm seeing and what I'm a big believer of is that the more you share the more you you also gain I've had mm-hmm. people come to me and and mention opportunities to me that you know even if I'm not going to go for it I can then refer someone else on and they're doing that because I give a lot I I make sure that if people want information it doesn't help me to keep it to myself and confidence I think the biggest thing about getting through med school is confidence you don't have to be the smartest in the room but you have to be confident enough to say I don't know what's going on can you help me an older student can you tell me what was the exams like what tends to come up what doesn't you want to apply to Cambridge message someone on LinkedIn who's been to Cambridge and ask them what comes up what are the interviews like who do you recommend for a supervisor because I don't think people should go into things blind because unfortunately mm-hmm. the candidates you're going up against are probably not going into it blind and it's not as much of a fair you know competition as you think it is you know people don't submit essays to competitions without having three or four people read over it so don't be the person that just writes something random and submits it and hopes to win you know there's mm-hmm. there's there's preparation and strategy behind everything you do and confidence comes with that Great, yeah, and I really loved one thing that you said as well. It's it's confidence, you know, knowing that you're the right person to do this, but also letting people know that actually I'm not sure about this. Can you help me with this? And I think it's also about knowing that, you know, the most important skills that one person has is to be able to learn. So I don't know this, but I'm willing to learn this. Mm. Can you help me do this? And I'm confident then with help, with reading up and with the research, then I can do it. And I think mm. that's something that people really look for is someone who is able to learn, able to be really independent and 
accept what they don't when they don't know, but then mm-hmm. work on it and gain that knowledge and those skills as well. Yeah, agreed. Great. It's so interesting to hear about all your the research that you've done and um, how, how you know you came to about getting really good at research as well. Um, when you're talking about sharing things, obviously it, um, it makes me think about some of the other things you do on the side, which is your Insta, your blog, and your eBooks. So if you want to tell us a bit about how that came about, how did you start you know, sharing so much with others and on social media, on the blog, and how it's been all evolving, so... Well, I think at the moment I've taken this exam season, so I've taken a little bit of a break. But mm. I think when I started posting about medicine properly it was probably during lockdown. So obviously yeah. a lot of students who wanted to get into medicine had their work experience placements taken away from them. They didn't know where to start. Um, they wanted people to read their personal statements and give them advice on that. And I decided to just share a lot about taking a gap year um and also was just open to reading people's personal statements and giving um advice and help because it's something I'd been doing as a student ambassador so I was quite I'd done it for quite a few years and I was like let me make this just an open service and what better way to do that and and give it just a level of professionalism than just start a website because I'd had an Instagram kind of laying low I'd posted a little bit about my gap year um and I would get questions in the DMs here and there about you know how was your gap year how did you get a job as a HCA how did you do this and then I decided to take all the FAQs I'd got over the years and actually just put it into a website so created a website wrote blog posts on all the common questions I got and just left them there and was like also if you want to have a personal statement review let me know and just let's go for it and then I just developed that into mentoring and then it just gained more and more traction and I just then started having that as a separate hub for information and then my Instagram as a little bit more about what my life is actually like as a medical student. Obviously Instagram is a highlight reel but a big part of my philosophy is continuing with hobbies and things you like to do even if you're doing medicine, medical school, something that takes up a lot of your time. Um, So I do post things like yes I go traveling, I still do research and like go to conferences. I also do do well in my exams and still do medicine and I do want people to be encouraged to feel like they can do it all but also being honest about like I need to take a break or I'm not going to share this bit or you know I this this bit's really difficult and this is how you can avoid it in future so um that's what kind of my Instagram's a bit more about and then my blog is like the information hub and the ebooks came about from just things I am just obsessed with I'm a bit of a um I'd say like if I like something I'm going to research it in and out inside and out (laughs) so I've always been interested in being a doctor abroad in some capacity I was I'm I'm very much a fan of um, Medicine Sans Frontier like the MSF Doctors Without Mm. Borders but also relocating permanently or semi semi semi-permanently for a while to see what healthcare is like abroad because I think one thing the UK really lacks is encouraging people to do that and actually telling them to come back and Mm -hmm. share what they saw Um, and listening and putting it into action not just tell us okay cool we've heard thank you you know whatever so I've always wanted to do that and I thought why not research all these countries that people on Instagram told me they wanted to learn about and put it into a resource so that's how the relocating books came about they were the first ones and then I got full funding to Cambridge so I came up with one about how I came about funding all the research I did all the strategies I used And then finally, um, the most recent one was about research, you know, what I learned from my master's, examples of all the different work I've submitted and the grades I've got, 
um, what I wish I did differently. I've annotated, I've critiqued my own work. And just like what I think medical students should have as the basics going forward that will at least get you a publication or two or get you involved in a research project where you feel like you can actually contribute. Because I feel like in first and second year, the biggest thing that holds students back is that confidence and those lack of skills because they haven't been given a chance. That's great. Wow. And there's so much there, like you said. So you have the three ebooks that you mentioned, mm-hmm. the first one about relocating, the second one about funding and the third mm-hmm. one about research. Each with like so many information because they're what, 40 pages long each ebook? Like, like it's a lot I of think- work. The, the research ebooks like 80 oh, and I wow. think the, re- the relocating ones around 80 as well I think and also I, I update them every year mm-hmm. so well mainly the relocating one but I think the funding one's the shortest because it's got a few of the applications that I made and just links a lot of links of like all the different funding opportunities that might be there for medics as well because I think we do have a lot of years to fund mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of funding that is specific for us that we can take advantage of as well but yeah a lot of pages but not all of them are just white blank pages with writing no. on them don't worry <laughs> and so how do you want to take us through how is an ebook born like how does mm. it from like idea in your head to actually that's it it's published kind of all the steps the, the thing is I think people think it's a lot more complicated than it is so that everybody I've spoken to where I'm like yeah I just decided to do it I am not um the most famous person on Instagram and I don't try to um put myself as a total person of authority I'm always open mm-hmm. to new ideas critique feedback but I think what helped me first of all launch an ebook from the start you need to have an audience and you need to have an audience that is just as obsessed as you are so for example with the re- relocating books I was speaking to doctors from the countries that I was writing about so it wasn't just me going on google and reddit copy and pasting some things and then coming up with my own narrative I'd actually spoken to doctors who proofread the book so it gives it a little bit more authority um, and built up a kind of an excitement about, OK, if this is what an hour of talking to these doctors is like and this is the Instagram stream, I just want this on paper. I think that's what people really were struggling with. They could listen to a podcast or listen to um, a YouTube video, but it's about taking notes, having that instruction manual there and being like, right, I'm going to act on it now. You've got the checklist. You've got the time frame. It's time to act. So that's how you kind of build up an audience for it. And in fact, the actual thing is writing an ebook out on Microsoft Word, transferring it to a PDF and then merging the PDFs together. Like that is literally it. I make a few, I make my graphics on Canva um, and I had a good friend who's an amazing graphic designer who designed the front and back cover. I kind of tell him the brand colors that I am, that I use, um, what I kind of want it to look like. And he just goes ahead and creates like brings the vision to life so if it wasn't for that um my designer his name's Ruben and obviously just the writing which is my bit um Mm. coming together and then yeah you just you I had the website so the infrastructure's there um it's just uploading it and having a shop for it and then putting a price on it and hoping that your audience knows that you're going to produce something high quality will pay the money for it and then give you feedback on whether it's good or not and worth the money and hopefully luckily that's been the case so far. Oh, that's great. There's a lot, again, to, to discuss here because there's so many steps. But it's great how, like you said, you start from just your own interest and just talking to people and researching for yourself and then just putting it and realizing that you have actually all this information. It's about writing it, formatting it. 
something I picked up on as well is that you're using your skills that you have. I remember you said at the beginning, you really like English, you really like writing. So it's your skill, it's your kind of like thing that you have that maybe other medics don't have because maybe other medics can research as well, but you can also write it. So you're using your different skills to come up with something really cool and unique that um, then can help others as well. So that's really good. And as well, one thing that you do is you ask a lot of people for their kind of um, feedback on it as well before they publish. I know there's a lot of peer reviewers for your ebooks. And that's another great kind of like, like a force behind the ebook is that they, the people that wrote about that country, has also been reviewed by someone who works in that country mm. for the, the relocating ebooks. That's all super interesting. I love the process of like researching and then always double checking and kind of getting the information from people who know it the best um i definitely think that's something because you know i like i'm a bit of a perfectionist i like my things high quality and i like that i like that that's a reputation so i yeah i like things high quality i like to put for put my best foot forward especially on social media that i am high quality and why i produce is high quality so it only makes sense that if I'm going to put a price on something, I really do make sure it's worth that price. And I think I owe it to the people who have spent that money, but also the people who like want this, these kind of resources and are going to rely on them to like submit projects and, and all of that sort of stuff. And what I love about the whole ebook process and why I keep doing it is because you, like you said, it's such an array of skills that you use. I have to use my networking skills to get people to read yeah. it. I have to network with doctors across the country, but also like, hey, PhD student, can you read this research book and tell me on a reel, does it make sense? Is it good? Is this something that you would want for, you know, you would recommend to like a, this, a medical student at this level? And um, especially with the research guide, I think it was one of my favourite ones because I had students from year one medicine to PhD level, all kind of in STEM to some degree give me feedback on different parts of the book and then they would get that part for free, you know, and if they wanted the whole book, they would get like a special, you know, proofreader discount and things like that. But it's about developing those relationships with these people um, and really building on their feedback. And the beauty of an ebook, it can be, it's digital, so it can be updated. You can send it out to everybody. Um, you can change the cover. I started off with a relocating ebook with 12 countries in it and then realised there were medics who were like, ugh, I don't really want all 12. I just want to kind of get one and I don't really have the budget for 12. Well, I'll div divide it into 12. And mm. you, you, you use that feedback to get better and better. Um, you're not going to do it perfect first time, but you do need to do it to experience it. And then you realise it's not that it's not that tough. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Super interesting. And um, there's a lot of it as well from like kind of a business point of view. And sometimes as medics, we're like, oh, you know, money, like, let's not talk about it. But actually, no, let's talk about it. And part of, you know, having a business is kind of, you said, like pricing, but also responding to uh, customer feedback and, you know, the marketing side and the whole, you know, literally having a shop where you sell your books kind of. How did you go about kind of doing a bit of marketing, do a bit of sales as a person who I don't think you have any background in? business or anything like that so how was that for you do you know what i think instagram just being on social media you mm. realize how much sales and marketing experience you do have even mm. if you're a person with like 300 followers you just post a few pictures here and there by posting that picture 
number one, you want to look decent. You want to create a caption that, you know, people might respond to or engage with, or it's going to grab people's attention. And I realized all those things I was doing anyway, were going to be very important when I decided to make Mm. this ebook. And I think it was nice that my website came before my ebook because my website was me sitting on Wix, um, being like, oh, there's this picture of me. This is the only professional picture of me and I'm wearing blue. I'm, that's it. My brand colors are navy and brown. Like, um, and creating a logo on Canva and just making a website out of it. And those brand colors, I could then translate into my ebook. And that is now what people associate with me. And, you know, having a strong brand, being the face is great. Um, I like that people care about what I'm doing in my life and I, because it's part of this, it's part of what I'm selling as well. Um, mm. if I don't tell you I've got a publication how could you then know that I'm in a position to talk about research and make you interested in research or you think you can do it so I use what I achieve and what I'm going through to inspire and, and encourage others but also yes to sell a product and I think Instagram gave me so many skills for that and the feedback itself generates content when you get feedback from a customer that's great you share it and that might generate a yeah. sale. And that's where Testimonial Thursdays came about. It was going to be Feedback Fridays, but I was like, <laughs> do people really want to give up a Friday evening every week? Do I want to do that? No. So Testimonial Thursdays came about where I would literally, like you're doing now, it would be a discussion with someone, not necessarily for me to sell the ebook, but um, to talk about why they felt compelled to buy this and what they think it's how they think it's helped them going forward and a little bit about their journey as well and every single time I did a testimonial Thursday I would get a sale at least one and I was like this is a this is a sure proof way of marketing and marketing is trial and error that's the beauty of it you don't need a degree so (laughs) yeah I think as medics we're getting very good at marketing now I mean everybody's a TikTok medic a LinkedIn medic (laughs) an Instagram medic so um I love that I it's very fun as well yeah, you're right that with we have a lot of skills from medicine, to be honest, but like, you know, communicating um, how to explain something to someone in a clear way that's going to appeal to them as well. So the we do have a lot of transferable skills that we may not know that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I like how you described how it's all a journey as well, because it didn't come overnight. You know, you started by doing a bit of posting, then it went on to, you know, the website and you learn, you gather skills as you go and you build on the skills. So mm-hmm. you can't expect to, you know, suddenly write an ebook and sell it and that's it. I'm making a little side hustle. It has to yeah. come through kind of like learning and trial and error and building on the things that you know. And that's really, really interesting. And um, yeah, just well done for all the ebooks. I, I love them, by the way. I've I've seen a couple of them and um, really good quality stuff in the blog as well. So thanks for sharing all that do, do you have any tips for like medics who you know obviously have some people may want to have a side hustle next to their degree but how do you manage that time wise you look like you're just very organized but how is it from your end uh i won't lie i am very organized um I have been juggling things for as long as I can remember. But what I will say is choose your side hustle carefully. Mm -hmm. So my side hustle was being a HCA, but that's a very active form of income. You have to show up. Um, And, you know, medicine night shifts and weekend shifts, anyone who's worked any sort of part-time job with medicine, it gets old very quickly. Mm. You get tired, you get burnt out, and it's just not... you, You have to be able to quit it during exam season as well. So I just thought you know 
I was getting this little bit of income, but it would stop every single time I'd get to exam season. Um, I'd worked a lot of jobs that were like receptionists for accommodation or community facilitators and student ambassadors, but they're very active. You have to be there to show up. So I was like, passive is the way to go. And the thing is though, to get to a passive stream, you have to be very active at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, writing an ebook, I didn't pay myself per hour for the hours I put into the ebook. Of course not. Um, <laughs> I had to I had to have upfront costs. So it costs to run a website, it costs to pay a designer. Um, yeah, and you've got to kind of weigh up whether the hours you put in and what you're producing has a big enough audience for that cost to be met and then for you to make a profit. And for me, um, from sharing everything that I was online and the feedback that I was getting, I knew that there was an audience, but you never know how many people are truly going to buy something. Mm. So um, I would bear that in mind. Ebooks isn't the only way to make passive income. I mean, I would love to be a YouTuber, but that's not my skill set. My skill set is mm. writing. Mm. I am a long form content kind of girl. I cannot sit in front of a camera and vlog my whole life. I It just wouldn't come naturally to me. But that's another passive form of income people choose to do but it's very active as they're filming it and there's those of other ones i mean instagram you could just have an instagram and just post on instagram and get paid to do posts at some point Mm. um you've got to just decide what your pick your poison um (laughs) and make sure you're comfortable with it but you will have to put in some active work at the beginning definitely yeah awesome that all sounds great um thank you for sharing all the tips as well I think we're coming towards the end of the episode as well. I've been keeping you for a while. I just realized. Um, I want to ask you a few questions before we wrap up. Obviously, the theme of the podcast is more than medical students. And we've already touched on it because you've said something that was really important. That was continue your hobbies, which I love. Um, what What's your take on more than medical students? And what do you think about all of that side of things? I I love the phrase more than a medical student because I do think that it is a career and a a subject at university that is that is people particularly expect to take up our whole life Um, and I'm so glad that more of us are saying yes I'm going to dedicate a big portion of my life to it and my patients but I am also a person and Mm -hmm. for me to be the doctor that I am I have to do loads of great things outside of my job that excite me so I think being more than a medical student is just again not giving up your hobbies and doing things that keep you excited and passionate and also give you a break from medicine medicine can be exciting and passionate but I don't care what anyone says even the most keen medic ever is going to get sick of studying Mm -hmm. and just thinking about medicine so do things that really light your fire outside of medicine and if you're not sure what does you need to go outside a bit more go and apply to a leadership program go and join a society but take a risk and never let your hobbies die because i'm not gonna lie no one just wants oh yeah i'm just a doctor you're not gonna Mm. be that fun at parties you know you don't have anything (laughs) else to say (laughs) love that yeah um great thank you so much um before you go do you have any resources that you want to recommend to our listeners apart from the ebooks because for sure they're already all going (laughs) to run to the ebooks after this episode any resources that you recommend any books any documentaries movies or podcasts that you want to share with the listeners well i love this podcast i think this is amazing i think if you want to learn about um what it's like to go to med school but also all the other things you can do outside of it and people's different stories this is definitely a podcast to listen to i think medicinergy as well it's by a sixth form student and she talks to people more about the application process and what they're doing in medicine as well highly recommend really impressive from her 
um, resources. I mean, I talk a lot on my blog about how to get an HCA job. I tend to get a lot of questions about that. And that gives, I have my CV on there and everything. Um, mm. I think UCAT resources, YouTube, and, you know, they're there all over a lot the place. Yeah. UCAT and BMAT, there's loads. Um, I think that's everything, to be honest. Oh, Perfect. you have a notion, but I think that's for medical students. When, yeah. they're, when they're medical students, go to the notion that's got electives on there. It's got clinical placement stuff. Like, I've used it. So I recommend that. I'm doing the promo for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jess. Uh, thank you. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of free resources and a lot of like resources with a price like yours that is completely, you know, fair with the quality of content. So I think it's great for medical students to have all these options of things they can look into themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Not just wait for the medical school to give them the resources or give them the knowledge to just go out and learn it from each other as well, which is great. Um, before we finish, do you want to remind everyone your socials, your website, how to find all your support and all your books out there that they can have a look at sure um instagram jess.olo website progress with jess.co.uk um the shop and the blog and everything is all in one place um twitter i do tweet a little bit about mainly child and adolescent mental health and mm. pediatrics because those are the specialties i'm quite interested in and obstetrics and gynecology so that's jess zero l o so just olo but with zero and um I think, yeah, LinkedIn, Jessica Logbon. If you find me, I'll be happy to connect and happy to answer questions. Perfect. That's amazing, Jess. I hope a lot of people will go and connect with you there. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Jess, for coming on today. It's been honestly such a pleasure. We've talked about so much. Thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule to come here. It's been a real pleasure. Um, Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day and uh, you take care, yeah? You too. Bye. Bye.